I am very hopeful that we have solved the how to get stuff out on the internet through our YouTube channel live and that some of you are watching that right now. I'm starting to feel last Sunday and this Sunday that there's enough of a crowd before me to feel like we're having church. And it feels like real people, and I can hear real voices coming up at me on the stage. Thank you for allowing me to sit in with the band. We're going to talk today about the first 11 verses of the book of Mark, when the messenger becomes the message. And so that we can get through some of, sometimes it'll bounce off the walls. Hey! I guess it's the quick draw that does it. (laughs) The beginning of the gospel. I'm going to start right there and let's stop right there. I know we haven't gotten very far, but that's important. By the time Mark wrote what he wrote, which is just a few years after these literal, real, historic events took place, and then Mark started to compile his action-packed gospel, the word gospel had already developed a meaning, and it's a powerful meaning. It was a packed full of meaning, meaning. And it was the kind of thing that talked about the whole story of Jesus and his sinless life, the miracles that he performed, the authority with which he spoke, and then his death, burial, and resurrection, and most importantly, the saving power that that offers to sinners. That's all encompassed in this one word gospel. So if somebody might say, well, how come you Christians are always using the gospel? You're talking about gospel this and gospel that. Well, there's good reason for it. It's because that's the word that encompasses the most important thing about our Christian faith and all that Jesus did for us. So when Mark says the beginning of the gospel, he knew that already there were people who would understand this is something that's just fraught with meaning. It doesn't mean just good news, although it can be good news for many people. That's kind of the origination of that word. And it doesn't just mean an announcement, although it can be an announcement. But hopefully it's an announcement of this good news which is power-packed with what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's the gospel. So now let's pick it up where we left off. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Got to stop there. Any other gospel is not the gospel. There are a lot of people who have a lot of ideas And some of them may appear on the surface to be good ideas about how we can make our peace with God or how we can have a peaceful existence on this earth, a a purpose-filled life on earth. But if it's apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's not the real true gospel, especially according to Mark and according to the Apostle Paul, too. He had said, there's only one gospel, and that's of first importance. And Paul even said, but even if we, meaning the apostles, those who have actually seen these miracles, those who interacted personally with Jesus Christ, or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary or different to the one we preach to you, let him be condemned or accursed. So Paul was saying, there's only one gospel, and it's the gospel according to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's important, and Mark got it right, right off the bat. Looking ahead, verse 2, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, he writes. Mark is quoting or alluding to the Old Testament, and he does so often. Uh, We've talked about this in times past, about how many times the New Testament writers alluded to or quoted directly from the Old Testament. Jesus did so himself a number of times. 
It's important because we understand that even in Mark's gospel, 38 different times he either alludes to and sometimes will paraphrase from or will directly quote from Old Testament's uh, verses and including the prophets, which not only just foreshadowed and gave some hints about the upcoming Christ, but sometimes they would prophesy with great specificity. Finally got that word right. Specificity. Amen. When you get a word right, you get rewarded by that. For those of you who are watching in my stream, there's this huge blower in the building where we are, and I said specificity correctly, and the blower went <laughs> He's talking about the Old Testament, which is important because he's starting to build a bridge to the New Testament already. And so he starts to quote right off the bat here in the second part of verse 2. He says, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, or for the Lord, make his paths straight. Who is this person? Who is the messenger? John the Baptist. Thank you for that. Verse 4, in the wilderness, John the baptizer began preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, and he was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. When you guys sent Joy and me to Israel, we got to go to the Jordan River. We did see a spot that would have been very similar to, and they're thinking very close to the point where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And it's an exciting thing to think that that water's been flowing through that river all these many years and that people have been commemorating that act for this many years. And we saw several different people groups being baptized as well in different languages, which was a real neat thing because you could hear Mandarin being spoken over here as they were baptizing people. We could hear Spanish over here to our right. We could hear English in front of us. That has been going on, and it's probably daily people are continuing to be baptized in that Jordan River. And people from the whole countryside had come out to this and were baptizing in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Then in verse 6, John wore a garment made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Our guide said that they may have referred to some of these carob pods because they call those locusts and they look numerous like locusts when they fall down out of the trees and they're quite sweet. Or it could have been actual locusts, we're not sure. We had a good debate about some of that uh, topic with some of our people that were on our tour. Some adamantly said, no, it says locusts. I think it was the real locusts. And I said, that's fine. That's cool. If you think it's real locusts, that's great. You just, more power to him. Uh, I'm okay either way. I just know that he was eating food that was apart from the traditional fare, and that's the important thing, and we're going to see why in just a second. He proclaimed, one more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to bend down and untie the strap of his sandals. So there's some humility being demonstrated here. I baptize you with water, says John, but he, meaning the person that he is heralding, the person that he's introducing, who will come, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, in those days, meaning in those same days when John was out there preaching and baptizing, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. 
And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, which gives you a clue about how they did the baptisms back then, they went into the water and came up out of the water, so that's immersion. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my one dear son. Some translations say my beloved son. In you, I take great delight. In you, I am well pleased. Let's pray for God to start illuminating these 11 verses for us and to show us some things that I trust will inspire us to become messengers who embody the message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, despite the fact that I am such an imperfect spokesperson for such an awesome message as this, I humbly present myself to you as a mouthpiece of these words because I know it's your word that is effective and powerful. And so I'm lifting out that word, praying that you're going to illuminate it for us, that you're going to speak with that word to our hearts, and that you will strike us where we need to be struck, heal us where we need to be healed, motivate us where we need to be motivated into action so that we can indeed embody this message so that our life and lifestyles match the message we're trying to proclaim to those around us because we know that there is only one way to heaven and that is through the person of Jesus Christ as we're going to see in this great book. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John the baptizer, he serves as a bridge between the Old and New Testaments. And because he actually even wore clothing like Elijah the prophet, he wore this camel hair outfit with a leather belt. He ate food that was out in the wilderness. He stayed out in the wilderness. He preached in the wilderness. When he came even as close as he did to Jerusalem, going only to the Jordan River, he was setting himself apart like one of the Old Testament prophets. And many scholars would even call him the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though he appears in the New Testament. Because he is the bridge builder, the one God has used to tie everything together even after that 400-year hiatus in the intertestamental period between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. John recognizes his role, and he enters the picture knowing that he is a prophet of sorts. So in this very real sense... He is like the embodiment of Elijah. And in fact, later on, we even see how some people thought that John the Baptist might have actually been Elijah incarnate. We don't believe that's the case. Visually, he was different. He dressed like the Old Testament prophets. Uh, what he ate was like the Old Testament prophets. How he delivered his messages was very much in keeping with the style of very blunt, forceful, bold prophecies. And he wasn't afraid to tell people how the cow ate the cabbage so to speak, including saying some very fierce and direct things to some of the religious leaders who were really not prepared to repent and open themselves to the coming Lord that John wanted them to be open to. John was intentional. He was intentional about everything that he did, and everything he did was, in a sense, a protest. It was a protest against the culture of his day, including materialism, and power-mongering, we had some of these uh, very serious people, the Pharisees who were so pious, and they wanted power because of all that, and 
they would keep you at bay and keep you from having power as long as you didn't measure up to their standards based on the many oral traditions that they had heaped upon the other laws. Even his choice to be out away from the city in the wilderness was intentional. It hinted at where Israel had come from because Israel had been sent out into the wilderness because of their disobedience. And so they were being brought back into the Holy Land eventually, but John has meaning behind everything that he does. He was a pulpit pounder kind of a guy. He pounded his message across. Sometimes God knows that it takes certain kinds of people who can speak the language of two by four. And that's the only way he's going to get through to some of these people. Some people were much more meek and lowly. And interestingly, he sent Jesus as a meek and lowly babe, completely vulnerable. That was not John. John the baptizer had powerful words. His words were like, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer my message into the Pharisees. That was John. And so he pounded his message and he hammered home these words of truth. He fearlessly proclaimed the message of repentance for the preparation of the coming Messiah. And that was important because he recognized that he was not trying to garner a huge following of his own disciples. He was preparing so that those disciples could get turned over, so to speak, to the real master, the one whose sandals he wouldn't even untie. He spoke harshly to the Pharisees at one point, shouting, You offspring of vipers! And in the Hebrew, it kind of comes across as being almost a swear, like, you sons of vipers, it was rough. He really put things out there in a way that would cause people to have shock and awe in how they were responding to his words. He said, you are a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit that proves your repentance. That was John's style. Well, we also see, though, even though he was powerful in his words that way, he was also humble because he submitted himself to the one he was heralding. He said to some of his disciples who had expressed concern after Jesus' popularity was growing and John's popularity polls were diminishing, they came to him and said, John, what's up with this? We're concerned about that. And John said, no one can receive anything unless God gives it to them from heaven. You yourselves know, he says, how I plainly told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. And just to make sure, they completely got the point. I think I would have gotten it by then. But John hammers home his point, and so he adds, he must increase, but I must decrease. So is it possible for a heavy hitter person to also be humble? I think so. I think John embodies that. I've seen some very heavy hitter preacher types who are also very humble, especially in the face of the Messiah. The reason John was so effective, I think, in his role in preparing people for this coming Messiah was because his message matched his lifestyle. The messenger became the message itself. Everything that he was saying was backed up by what he was doing. So he not only talked the talk, but he walked the walk as well. And that's why I think anybody who matches that way, people notice. They're going to perk up and they're going to pay attention because they want to say, why is this person so different? And he's passionate about it. He means what he's saying. That was John. I think it's interesting to see all the different styles of people God has used to help 
lead people to that point where they're willing to take that step over the line of faith and embrace Christ. I have a friend named Joe Serafin. haven't mentioned him for years. Uh, he lives in Tecumseh, and he's actually a chaplain in one of the prisons out in Adrian. And he has been a counselor, a very biblical-minded counselor, and a strong believer. But before he became a believer, he was just trying to investigate the way any good intellectual would. So he went to the library and got a whole stack of books on spirituality, and he had uh, Wiccanism, and he had New Age topics, and he had astrology and some other things, fortune-telling. He had this big stack of books on his coffee table. And a friend of his, who was at that time a prison chaplain, and he's the guy who actually got Joe into becoming a prison chaplain. Anyway, he visited Joe in his house, and he saw the books, and he never mentioned them. He didn't throw a tirade. He didn't start chucking books into a barrel and say, you got to throw these away, Joe. These are dangerous for you. Because he knew that at that moment, the Spirit was guiding him to just be a good, solid witness with his lifestyle. And he started sharing, when the time was right, with Joe, his own story. First, he listened. He listened, listened listened. And he found out where Joe was coming from. And then when the time was right and Joe was open to it, he shared his testimony. And he said, well, let me tell you a little bit about something that's made a difference in my life. And he did that. This guy's name was Steve. And Steve shared his testimony. It didn't take too many weeks later until Joe stepped over the line of faith and said, Steve, I get it. Thank you for showing me the way to the truth. I want this Savior that you're talking about. I want to model my life around Jesus' life. I need him to come into my heart, do whatever you're talking about doing. I want to follow Jesus. And he did. And then he started reading the scriptures, and Steve started giving him some places where he could go. And he said, start with the book of Mark, because it's the shortest and it's the most action-packed, and you're going to see how Jesus comes across to all these people. It didn't take too many weeks until Joe realized, oh, yeah, these other books are not leading me to the truth. I need to stick with the truth. I need to read the Bible as he was doing regularly. And he took the books back to the library, didn't read a single one of them. Isn't it good to know that sometimes God will send us the low-key approach person because he knows that's how it's going to connect best with our heart. And he also knows how to send the right heavy hitter person to the person who needs the language of two-by-four. And he does that through John the Baptist. And both can be used powerfully by God because God doesn't have any one specific type of evangelism. And I'm really grateful for that. It's good for us to just know that we can trust God, that even though that person may have a little different style than we have, if they're bearing fruit, that's a good thing. And let's just pray, God, have your hand on that person's style of evangelism, even though it's different than mine. And I trust that you're going to lead people into faith in you and grow them to be more like you. Another guy that I've mentioned, and I started kind of following him through the years to see if there's an update on his progress, Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper, this rock and roll star, and the reason I got to thinking about him was because I visited a couple of friends of ours when we were on our vacation, and we went to Phoenix, Arizona, we went to Glendale, some of the areas where I grew up, and I know a guy, I know a guy, who played trumpet in the orchestra at North Phoenix Baptist Church. This was kind of a mega church. They had about 6,000 people in their services on Sunday morning in the same building. It was a big building. But the pastor back then, when I was going to college and when Alice Cooper was in the valley, because he had grown up uh, both from Detroit, Michigan and in Arizona, he had some ties to both of those places. Another reason why I was interested and so he started attending this church where Richard Jackson was the pastor. Now, I went to school with Richard's son. Richard was this John the Baptist style of hellfire and brimstone, 
pulpit pounding kind of a guy and thousands of people were coming to faith and being baptized under Richard Jackson's ministry in Phoenix. It was an unprecedented season of growth for that church and Alice says in an interview with Greg Laurie, the evangelist and pastor out at Harvest Fellowship in California, Orange County, he said, I was going every week because I knew something was messed up in my life. Yeah, understatement. He was under all kinds of addictions. He said he was addicted to several different things at the same time. His wife was about to leave him. His life was in shambles. He started attending. He said, but it was as though, even though there were 6,000 people there, it was as though Richard Jackson were preaching right to me every week. And I left feeling beaten up and awful, but I kept going back. <laughs> and I don't know why I kept going back, except I guess I do know now, but I just felt like he's telling the truth. And I knew that even some of the songs that I had written, and a lot of people think there's a little evil and stuff in them. He said, yeah, there's good and evil. And I recognize now that I was struggling my whole life with this dichotomy between good and evil. And I do believe that evil exists because I lived it and I've seen it. And he said, but this guy was telling me, but you've got to choose. You've got to choose one or the other. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve the devil? He put it down so simply so a guy like me could get it. And he said, so finally I got it. And I decided I need to choose God. And I decided to follow Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And he meant it. And in listening to some of the interviews, I've seen him growing through the years. Because at first, he was a little mamby-pamby. And some of the phraseology he was using wasn't terribly theologically correct. But he had his heart in the right place. And now, I saw one interview that was much more recent. And he's putting it right out there. He's quoting from Scripture. He said, I, I needed a guy like Richard Jackson to just... Hit me between the eyes with the truth. Now I'm attending a Bible fellowship on the east side of the valley, closer to where I live, and it's a good Bible teacher, and I'm feeling like I'm growing in my faith, and I'm understanding the love of God. I needed the wrath of God to save me, but I also now need to know the love of God, and it's transforming me. And that's Alice Cooper's story, which I thought was rather unusual. Well, I was so grateful that God can use somebody like a Richard Jackson, even though I grew up always wondering if I was falling short in the ministry because I couldn't spit like he did. And, you know, I, I couldn't pound the pulpit, and I just didn't have that same fire in my belly for reaching people the way he did. But when I see all the ways in the book of Mark that we're going to be looking at in this next several months that God used to reach people, I'm so grateful that as long as the messenger becomes the message, God's going to use it. And that's what he did with John. That's what he did with Steve, the guy who helped lead my friend Joe to the Lord. When the messenger and the message all come together, and it's authentic, God can use that. Well, John the baptizer was the right man with the right personality and the right message at the right time in history, and he helped prepare the way. Gratefully, God knew that. He was truthful. He was direct. His lifestyle backed up his character qualities. He was the real deal. His message was complete as well. He prepared for the Messiah who would usher in fulfillment of the law, not to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it through grace. And he knew that God's grace was infinite. And so John preached preparing so that people would be open to that message as personified in God's son, Jesus. And he was passionate. That's why so many people kept flocking out to him. When you can understand how many people were probably being baptized by him, it was a huge 
number of people. They were flocking to him. Why? Because he was so passionate. It says in verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized. That's a lot of people. So John meant what he said. People knew it. He was bold, had that truthful character. His lifestyle matched the message and his passion all expressed that he was God's man for the hour. And then we also see that John's message was affirmed. And this is such a beautiful moment in Christ's earthly ministry. We read that Jesus had traveled to where John was, and then Jesus actually asked John to baptize him. And we're thinking, well, wait a minute. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? I mean, he's God the Son, right? So he's perfect. He doesn't have to repent for any sin. No, he didn't. He was sinless, so he wasn't being baptized for repentance, but he was being baptized to fulfill the law and as an example for everybody who would come after him. And he was foreshadowing his death, burial, and resurrection. All of the above is why Jesus needed to be baptized. And look what John said in response to that. He says, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. So why are you coming to me? Well, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. And so John agreed to baptize him, and he did so. And then we see that wonderful affirmation. Something happened that was so unusual that the spirit in the form of a dove, however it manifested himself after that sky split in two, the spirit came down. So we see really a personification of the entire triune God present at Jesus' baptism, the inauguration, so to speak, of his earthly ministry. We've got the Father who spoke, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, I delight in him. We see the spirit in the form of the dove, and we have Jesus himself, God the Son, all three present at the beginning of his ministry. So I just have to ask the question, which I don't ask often enough probably. Have you identified with Christ through a public baptism? I think it's an important question, and I think it's one that we should all consider carefully. I was baptized very, very young in my life because I had good Christian witnesses in the persons of my parents and my grandparents, and I was actually baptized by my grandfather because he was a Baptist minister. I was so short that they had to put a plastic crate in the bottom of the baptistry for me to stand on so that I could get up tall enough and then he could baptize me. And I remember it to this day. People say, oh, come on, you can't possibly remember that. You were five years old. Oh, but I can. I remember the purplish windows and the sun coming in. It was the first Baptist church of Glendale because my dad was helping start a new church and it was a house church at that time. Didn't have a baptistry, so First Southern Baptist Church of Glendale opened up their sanctuary on a Sunday afternoon. It was in Phoenix, and so it was warm. I remember wearing a short-sleeved white shirt. There was a fly buzzing around. I even remember that because I had swat at it a couple of times, and my mom gave me that look. And I remember being baptized and looking out and seeing the smiling faces of every single person in that auditorium looking at me like, we're affirming you. You should be doing this. This is an important step in your walk with the Lord. Good for you. And I remember being baptized by that man who was so influential in my life and later, I would come to know him as one of the key influencers in my ministry. That's an affirmation that we can all receive in our baptism. And if you haven't done that yet, let me urge you the way John would, forcefully, and say you need to get baptized if you're a follower of Christ because we should all identify with him and not be fearful of that. It's an affirmation and it's an identification to show 
I am not afraid to follow him, my master, my Lord, and my Savior. If he can be baptized, certainly I can. And I need to because I need to repent. He didn't even have to, but he did so just to show me that example. So God smiles on his children, and he does so in very different ways. And it's the same wonderful smile and affirmation that we get. He smiled on Jesus for doing the right thing back then. I'm sure that John felt that quickening in his spirit. His heart beat faster as he was doing the things God called him to do. And there are certain times when all of us are doing something to serve others, and we're exalting Christ in the midst of that, when we just sense God's affirmation, God's smile. And we could almost picture him saying, I delight in you, and I'm grateful that you're pouring yourself yourself out to others in the way that you're doing that. And there's any number of ways to do it. We've talked a lot about spiritual gifts. We're all given a variety of gifts. Gift of teaching, get to hear some good teaching. Thank you, Mark and Steve, for both carrying out your gifts of teaching and Sherry, because there's a team effort going on here with the Elwells too. And I'm just so amazed at the solid biblical teaching that we have access to in this small congregation. God blessed us in that. And I hope that when you're teaching that you sense God's affirmation, that there are those times when you think, I think God's probably smiling right now because this was his word and it was put across in such a way that I saw the light bulb go on. I think that's when God can smile. There are people who have the gift of baby whispering. We're going to need to re-kickstart our nursery program here because we're praying for God to send us families with young children, and we're going to need to have them cared for. And I've known some people that they just embodied the baby whisperer gift. Now, that's not listed in any of the biblical lists, but I'm sure it's got to be there somewhere because there's those baby whisperers, they're so good with children, and they make them feel so at home in God's house so to speak. I know that we are God's house, but you know what I say. There's something about people who can just make kids feel welcome and warmed, and they can embody the message to them as well. We need people like that. Gift of music. I got to sit in today, and I was just so blessed by that, and I felt like God's probably smiling as people are making music, but you all are just really offering yourselves up in music to him in praise. I'm sure that that was a wonderful sound in his ears too. Gift of hospitality. Some people who can make people feel so warm and welcome and invited. And they they provide the environment in which God can do what he's going to be doing with other folks. Gift of giving. I've known because I don't know who gives what. And I don't ever want to know because I don't want that to get in the way of how I might think about somebody. But I just know that we have some givers in this church who have given sacrificially. And sometimes at times when it was difficult for them. And occasionally, occasionally, I'll catch a glimpse Because somebody will tell me some story or testimony about something. And I've known that there were people who had that gift of giving who blessed somebody else anonymously, and I just got to be the conduit. And so somebody else had a really big need that got met because of this person with the gift of giving felt prompted to help meet that need. And nobody knew about it because it was done in secret, which is the way it should be. That's the gift of giving. Gift of encouragement. We have a number of people with the gift of encouragement in this congregation. And it's amazing how one good, solid compliment, I mean, you can feed off of that. that. That's like recharging your cell phone. You can go off of that for another six or eight hours just on one good compliment. And I'm grateful for some of the folks that have fed into other people's encouragement level by that. So in this sense, we can all be like John the baptizer. How is that? The message matches the messenger. When we're authentic, 
And when we're giving ourselves away in service to others, doing what God's called us to do, even though it's not to do what he called John the Baptist to do, all of us are doing that for the sake of the gospel. This word that's power-packed because of what Jesus Christ did for all of us. And when we live that authentically so that others can see Christ more clearly, we'll sense his affirmation. And God will grow his church because others will be drawn into his presence, not because of any good that we can do, but because we're just displaying his goodness to others. Let's pray together. Father, I'm really grateful for the many gifts that you've given people in this body of Christ and in many other bodies of Christ around this nation of ours. And we're desperate for people to authentically live out their faith. And I pray that we will take notes from Mark's gospel, including a note from John the baptizer, that we can just be authentic and live out our faith in the way that you've gifted us, knowing that we don't have to all become exactly like John to evangelize, but that we can all be a part of the evangelization process in other people's lives by being authentic believers in you. Thank you that you do that continually and that you will continue to grow your church. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.